0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network channel in sociology. I'm your host, Richard Osijo of the City University of New York, and I'm joined today by uh, writer Malcolm Harris, who is the author of the book Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. Malcolm, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Great. So uh, besides your... Uh, birth year which you have on the on the cover confirming that you are a true millennial. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your yourself, your background and the origins of this book and how you came to write it.
1: Well, let's see. I grew up and um, went to elementary school, middle school, high school in Palo Alto, California, which is a, a location of note these days, I guess, uh, as it was at the time as well, uh, writing about the economy. So I certainly had a certain insight growing up there, um, and then I went to school at the University of Maryland. And while I was there, while I was at the University of Maryland, the 2008 financial crisis hit. And so I was, you know, at a school full of, full of 30,000 young people who suddenly didn't know what kind of world we were about to enter. And I was part of a political group on campus called Students for a Democratic Society uh, that was fighting a campaign against a proposed tuition increase. And so me and uh, a friend researched and did this teach-in about the financial crisis, linking the financial crisis to um, this campaign we were doing about tuition at our school. What's the connection between the housing crisis and university tuition? And that's connection ends up being a lot closer, a lot tighter than I had imagined in the first place. And that turns into an article a few later for N plus one about uh, the student debt regime system, which hadn't been written much about at that time. And then that article sort of grows into this book as I realize and work through the questions of student debt, how central is this question of human capital, and in turn, how central that is to the economy itself.
0: Right, cool. And we're going to get into some of those topics, which you, you take up in the book uh, a little bit later on. But uh, just to start from the beginning, so this is the the sociology channel. And in sociology, uh, we use this concept we call the sociological imagination to help understand the world, basically meaning to, to put people's biographies and their personal journeys in their specific contexts. That is, the the times and the places and the structures that are totally beyond their control. And I think you do a really great job of this in the introduction where you really state the aim for the book, which is to really kind of cut through a lot of the popular stereotypes that we have of uh, millennials and to really try to reveal some of the conditions that these millennials, that millennials find themselves uh, growing up and coming of age and becoming adults uh, under. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those? Uh, some of that context that we often miss out on that often gets uh, ignored?
1: Yeah, well, I I like to think I'm in the same theoretical tradition as C. Wright Mills and as uh, other conflict theorists uh, within sociology, uh, other Marxists, within the Marxist tradition, uh, because the, the context for the development of this generation and the context for all of society is this question of class conflict. And that is almost always left out of any account we have of generations. Um, And if it is included, it's in this really crude metaphorical sense where some generation is supposed to stand in for the proletariat or something, which is silly. Um, But by looking at the changes to class relations over the past 35 years, I think that's how we can get a sense of what it means to have a generation or to, to mark a generation
0: right and and as I was reading the introduction where you you lay this this uh overarching framework out i I kept going back to the title, so the idea of kids these days, and it's always like oh kids these days are so different, but I kept thinking, well, it could easily be entitled parents these days uh parents mm-hmm. these days are obviously also different, and they're often they are really the ones who are behind these, uh, structures and these, uh, conditions that millennials find themselves growing up in.
1: That's true. Although there were, there were cases, I guess, overall in the course of my research, I started to go sort of easier on parents. Uh, the more I, the more I researched and found out, the more I sort of softened toward individual parents because they're, they're responding to real social trends. Those are the, the parents that we think are are causing the issues by uh, being helicopter moms or whatever, this is mostly cases of parents responding to situations that are, like you said, way beyond their control and trying to make livable futures for their children, which is becoming more and more difficult. Um, But it's true that that just because I'm looking at young people, um, that's a vantage point to look at the changes to society over this, this time period. Um.
0: Right. Yeah it's it's a great it's a great distinction and also a great it's a great point I think to make. Yeah. So you in the first chapter you you start from the beginning I guess right. You start with youth. You start with kids in school, and you have a great letter uh, from that an elementary school sent to parents, and this was I think in twenty fourteen. Uh, and it's telling these parents that they're canceling the school's annual play uh, because uh, basically they can't spare the time. It's They're too busy. They have standardized exams and they have to prepare for them and all this kind of stuff. And you use this to uh, introduce the main theme of this chapter. And that's the idea that schoolwork has become just so intensified today. Uh, so how does this chapter really uh, set the stage for what's going to be coming when we, uh, throughout the book.
1: The idea of human capital, I think, and that's, you know, it's in the title. It's a, it's a through line of the book for sure. And another way that I started approaching this book in the first place was thinking about um, human capital and schoolwork and schoolwork as building human capital, um, building the future skills necessary to run an economy and yet not being recognized as uh, as labor. And the sociologist, Jürgen Zinnaker, whose work, I, as I believe, uh, under-translated, does a really good job of um, looking at what he calls the, below what he calls the pedagogical mask, whereby we look at schooling activity and think of it as some sort of consumption as opposed to product- productive behavior. Um, Yeah, economically productive behavior.
0: Right. And this human capital logic has become infused really within all of schoolwork. And it's it's impressed upon children, you say, from a real young age to really build up as much as possible. But the key here is that there's a limited uh, payoff that they're going to be receiving from it.
1: In a really simple supply and demand sort of way, where you think if there are Companies that are looking to hire skilled workers, um, there there is the a demand for uh, skilled labor power. If you flood the market with cheap or with labor power, uh, with skilled labor, with human capital, you're going to lower the price. And that's what we've seen happen as more and more people build more and more human capital um, on their own time uh, with their own effort. The price has gone down. We've seen wages stagnate even for people with degrees.
0: Right. And this really leads to this next topic. And it's it's in many ways kind of how you started in college, college debt. Yeah. So we have tuition obviously going up considerably in both public and private uh, colleges and universities, while wages have not, at least not proportional to uh, the rise of tuition or in terms of keeping up with inflation. So we essentially have this generation that is indebted, but without the means to get out of uh, that debt, which they're told from a very young age they have to enter into. So what are some of the realities that college students uh, face today? Most are not the traditional 18 to 22, finish in four years, don't have to work, don't have to worry. Uh, can explore the liberal arts education and then become adults immediately. It's a lot more complicated than that. You show the the landscape of uh, college and the typical college student.
1: Yeah, the typical college student is something that I mean, we get a lot of pictures of that in the media about what a college student is. Uh, and that may have been more, it was definitely more accurate about past generations, what a college student looked like in the baby boomer generation is different than what a millennial college student looks like because it's a much broader percentage of the population. Um, and so now you have a situation where 70% of college students work, do wage labor in addition to schoolwork, and it used to be about a quarter. And so that's a huge difference, That and we haven't really incorporated that change into our idea of what a college student is. There are more college students who are food insecure, that is like literally hungry, uh than there are college students who live on campus. And right. that, that's that's nowhere near what we think in terms of the popular imagination about what a college student is. But we need to get it in our heads that these are poor workers.
0: Right, right. And a, a real related to this, a real illuminating and I think a very important part of the book is when you really describe how uh how student debt works. Um the 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 realities of it, the the history of it. And also, why college costs so much. What what are some of those? uh, What is some of that history? What are some of those uh, reasons?
1: Well, one thing, uh, a very recent one that people don't necessarily know because it wasn't really in anyone's interest in the government to talk about it that much, is that the whole almost the entirety of college financing was nationalized with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, So, as part of that bill, as a cost saving element of that bill, the federal government directly took over around 85% of student lending. Um, But that hasn't actually slowed the rate of increase on the cost of college because uh, people are still able to get that uh, money, whether it's the the government or private lenders. Uh, The difference is now it's the government is making profit instead of private lenders, which I guess is somewhat of an improvement, uh, but not... Not exactly what people were thinking, and not exactly what people would think if you said the government nationalized student lending
0: right it's it's a I didn't know that, and I think a lot of readers aren't dreaming that very recent history really uh that that's so uh intertwined with so many issues that that we discuss uh, regularly going on in the u s so moving on then after college uh this uh, progression we have here through the life of a millennial uh you discussed the world of work so post-college, and you use uh, Arnie Kalberg's famous breakdown of, sounds simple, but the idea of good and bad jobs based on a, a variety mm-hmm. of criteria, so very traditional criteria like pay and benefits, but also a job's flexibility, a job's, uh, the amount of autonomy, a job grants a worker over their own work, uh, a job's stability, all these different factors, a job's level of precariousness, so there's... Basically, the 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 idea that the, the economy has become more precarious, labor markets have become less stable. What are some of these the implications for these these shifts in the labor market, specifically for uh, young adults, young workers like millennials?
1: Well, all the I mean, everything you just said is uh, is uh, true, and a big part of that reality,
0: we've seen uh,
1: temporary work increase, uh, the increase of jobs where. We, the connection between worker and employer is reduced, where the duties of an employer to an employee or someone they're paying, might not even be an employee these days, probably not, um, have been reduced. And that includes uh, pay. And so if you look at everything in the Caliber book, is is awesome. It's a really great sort of meta-analysis of the trends uh, within labor over the time period that I'm talking about. and. What he sees can often be reduced to decreasing labor costs. And so, whatever change is going to happen, the Occam's razor easiest way to explain chain, any change that's happened to the economy over the past 35, 40 years is decreasing labor costs. Every amount of precarity, um, every change in contract relationships, et etc., every change they've made has been, been about one thing, and that's been reducing labor costs. And they've been very successful. Now, what that means for the cohort of workers who are coming into the market as that's happening is they get paid worse. They work harder and they get paid worse. And it's <laughs> so much of it is very uncomplicated.
0: Yeah, and meanwhile, this cohort of millennials, they've been essentially raised to... Uh, keep up with these productivity demands of the new economy. It's almost as if their upbringing has really dovetailed with these uh, larger economic shifts.
1: Yeah, it's quite a coincidence, right? <laughs>
0: um,
1: and so, when, and it's funny watching the national discourse get it sort of backwards to say that you know major macroeconomic shifts are about the personality of millennials rather than the other way around. Um, as if our, like, demographic quirkiness has produced the 21st century economy as opposed to the 21st century economy producing our demographic quirkiness. And it really has been a, like, you know, blame the kids sort of situation. But I think that's that's starting to shift now, I hope.
0: Right, right. There's also the other side of the argument that, right, it relates to the whole, oh, millennials have this sort of innate uh, personality that they – they almost welcome this change. They want the the flexibility, right. right? That they want the autonomy. They've internalized, you can say, from from to read your argument, uh, that they've internalized this human capital logic so much to such a great extent that they feel that this is the only. There is no other alternative than to really see yourself as uh, this this totally individualized uh, worker, a free agent, essentially, uh, trying to to gain as much as you can for yourself in this new economy.
1: And some of it gets like really, really silly when we've got like the the new food courts, for example, it's like, oh, millennials can't afford, you know, the labor costs of a TGI Fridays, But you know what they're really like is, you know, consuming all their meals in mall style food courts. Congratulations. You can now eat all your meals in really hip <laughs> mall style food courts <laughs> or uh, tiny houses. You know, why would you want a full-sized home when you can have a tiny house? Like, you millennials, you're so crazy, you want smaller living spaces. Well, of course, people don't want smaller living spaces. That's ridiculous. Um, but these changes to the the quality of life that people are allowed in this country has been written down as uh, a kind of demographic characteristic
0: um,
1: as if Wanting less is is how we came to the world,
0: right? 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 You're you're born in a certain time frame. Some cosmic change occurred that implanted this idea in your head, or something like that, right? So, yeah. <laughs>
1: and people don't really think that they understand that we are the products of the world into which we're born. Um, but it does. Then we have to ask questions about. Generational responsibility and cohorts and stuff. You know, we can't blame baby boomers forever In -hmm. 30 years, there's gonna be be no one else to blame. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, The people shouldn't get that confused
0: right and and oh, to to build off of this I think a chapter you have chapter four you discuss a topic that I don't think is discussed as often as it really should be And, and it's really about the relationships that Millennials have with a variety of federal programs and Uh, different areas of government. And I think this has been brought into stark relief most recently uh, at the end of 2017 with the discussion of the the tax bill and some of the future long-term implications that this could have, especially for, well, for older generations, but also for uh, younger generations when it comes to Social Security, when it comes to uh, Medicare. And you really go into some really interesting detail about the... Uh, about social security and about uh, programs and policies that relate to youth poverty.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, youth poverty is again, something we, I think the public conception of is very uh, inaccurate, especially as it relates to elder elder poverty. We have no problem imagining old people as poor. Um, We sort of like, think they should be because they don't work on some level in this country uh because of our certain ethics or whatever. Um, but actually, the elderly are the, the least poor demographic. They have the the smallest rate of poverty. And that's solely, solely due to federal programs. And that's a good thing. Everyone Everyone thinks that's a good thing. Young people think that's a good thing. We're all very happy about it. But what people don't realize is that there's been this trend of the juvenilization of po- poverty. While we've solved elderly poverty, we've totally ignored youth poverty. And so this idea has become more common in the literature over the past decade or so, the juvenilization of poverty, that uh, minors, children under 18, have a increasingly high rate of poverty in America, which is true. But one thing we don't talk about is that the young adult level, which is now about the same as the youth level, so it's not just that people are under 18 that makes them poor. It's about when they're born. It's about their place in this uh, these demographic trends. And so the rate for for young workers um, is around 20% of poverty, uh, which is the same as it is for for actual minors. So yeah, that's that's a distribution of poverty that is, I do not think is very well understood.
0: Yeah, this chapter really made me think of uh, how we associate different social types with uh, certain spaces, certain geographical locations. And I think the, when we all, a lot of the portrayals of millennials is often, say, the, uh, the, the Silicon Valley young tech entrepreneur or something like that, um, when in fact it's just as likely to be somebody from a poorer, uh, say, a more rural Region, or from some struggling small town, or something like that, where there is greater amounts of scarcity, where there is less of a, uh, a, so- a social mobility uh, ladder, uh, and, and a lot more of these uh, social ills and social problems that are afflicting younger generations.
1: Yeah, and that should, I mean that doesn't surprise any sociologists, I would imagine, who know about you know bourgeois universality and the perspective on what a citizen is that we get from media that is controlled by a certain class. But it's, it's worth understanding and emphasizing that that is even less true of this generation than it has been in the past. Um, So because of the way uh, the job market has shifted over the past 30 years and rising inequality and the shrinking ruling class, that means all of those bourgeois universal descriptors that we're so used to are even less true of this generation than it was in the past. So in terms of generational descriptors, those have been really misleading and it's true that we hear them all the time. I can get a laugh. Anytime I say avocado, all I have to say is avocado and people in the crowd are like, Oh, ha ha ha. Yeah. Millennials, avocados, expensive fruit, et cetera. Um, but that is it has nothing to do with this question of young people who were born during this period uh, at which relations between classes were changing so drastically
0: mm-hmm. yeah there's a there's a cool chapter you yeah, have, chapter five where the first thing I thought was, oh okay, this is the first chapter where you know not all is gloomy uh, with with millennials, and <laughs> you do show how you know their technological innovations have allowed millennials to be. You know, to be creative by making and distributing their own creative content to an extent that previous generations have have not been able to do and there is something to to say for that i think and you, you give it it's it's uh just uh discussion but you know even but you also show you know even these leisure activities like making music like making uh videos uh all the way up until the uh, the sports you know youth sports still require a lot of labor a lot of really difficult work and that there are these uh, existing societal structures that are in place to try to exploit these efforts so while there is this sunny side about creativity about expression about personal you know innovation and so on there there's also the the flip side to it that these existing structures are nimble enough to uh, figure out what these shifts are all about and to figure out ways to uh, exploit this, uh, essentially this this youth labor, in many cases, underage uh, youth labor.
1: Yeah, one of the best examples and ones that, that I bring up in the book is I think the, the platform Vine, which a lot of us, I think, miss uh, the social media platform Vine, these little the, like I think it was four-second loops of video and audio, and they're really popular, very cool. And it was young people who were totally propping up the the platform, who were having a lot of fun making these videos um, that everyone else got to enjoy and got to enjoy the fun they were having, but that also was making money for people who were not these young people. And so when they went to the company, when they went to Vine and said, look, here's our offer. You know, we'll keep making this content. We'll make more of it. We'll make tons of these fun videos. But here's how you're going to cut us in. Here's how we're going to share in, you know, the profits of our creativity. And Vine just said no. And they just said no. This whole plan is based off not having to pay you. And the platform ended up shutting down. And I think now... Platforms are probably a little, they're definitely more interested in cultivating individual performers, individual young people, as it becomes more obvious that those individuals can be worth a lot of money and it can be worth it to cultivate them. But that means everyone, anyone who's trying to create, anyone out there who's just trying to make whatever or who's trying to succeed or no matter what, they're part of this giant talent search now that is the like the biggest game in media um automatically they are they are turned into work their play is turned into work by the nature of the platform because someone's cashing in and there are pluses and minuses to that um but taken in the context of the full set of changes that we've observed it's it's not a great time to have been born
0: you have a a great line about vine that they would uh they'd rather die than share some of their profits with the the content producers which i think is a a a really fascinating uh description and reality of, of a lot of these platforms and obviously it's not just vine and it's not just millennials but all they they are the ones who are tagged with the uh, the, the the tech label. So you know, Twitter, obviously, Facebook, um, any other number of uh, Instagram, any other number of these uh, platforms where it's you know user generated content. I think would uh, be applicable to what you're saying. But also the also the the, the NCAA as the example from mm-hmm. you know the, the, the sports world, which is NCAA has been around for uh, for a long time. I'm not sure exactly how long, but they obviously predate millennials. Um, but there has definitely been, I think a, in terms of not just the, the, the sheer sc- size and scale and the amount of money that's, that's poured into college sports, which is supposed to be amateurs, but in terms of how they're, uh, actually structured to reach down to the youngest levels of competition to create some sort of, uh, pipeline of sorts from, uh, youth up until young adulthood.
1: Yeah. And, and basketball, especially searching the whole world because it's, it's, and it's the same thing we see in entertainment is rarely in this economy is one individual person worth so much uh, as in sports and entertainment. And so we get to see things play out on a different scale. Um, but so teams, uh, will go searching the whole world, go to places where people don't even play the sport they're trying to recruit for. Or, just on the the odds game that out of a billion people, let's say in India, out of a billion people, you will find one professional basketball player. Even if those are your odds, even if your odds are one in a billion, uh, you can do it. You can go find them. And that has to do with changes in data technology and our ability to comb the world in globalization. Um, but all of that has changed the level of competition so totally. So that uh, if you put, whether it's basketball or football or whatever, put a player from 40 years ago up against, you know, standing in the same room with a player from now, and they look completely different. You're talking about different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. If you're six inches and 50 pounds heavier, that's a totally different game. And, we, and in football, we've gotten to the point where football is no longer compatible. The game itself is no longer compatible with the level of competition people are just too big that they can't play anymore because they break each other's heads open.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's and a... that's
1: sort of a in, a, in a, a metaphor for the economy in this situation where we've built people so detailed to their requirements, to their requirements for what we need from them or what we think we will need from them or what employers want from them, that the system doesn't even work anymore.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an I think it's an unlikely metaphor for like you said for what's what's happening overall to millennials. I think sports uh, though really captures it you know quite well. Now you have a at the start of chapter six you have a, you have cited a few studies that the, the findings of which are are really interesting. So b- behaviorally you talk about how millennials as a group really show an an overwhelming lack of trust <laughs> in in other people. Um, and just given how individualized society and how individualized the economy have become and how much risk people are asked to personally absorb, yeah, you know, and, and, you know, just given the, the era that millennials have been coming of age, I guess this finding is also not very surprising.
1: Yeah. Uh, the psychological effects um, of what, Oh, all these changes are hard to measure, I think, in some ways. Um, I'm skeptical of self-reported um, data in that way because I think the language we use to talk about these things changes so much. But especially with social trust, the numbers are just so drastic that there simply has to be something. There There must be something real under that data. Um, and I think it's to be expected. If we look at the changes that constitute the millennial cohort, you should trust people less. It's smart to trust people less. In a situation where people are more competitive, then less trust is a useful adaptation. And so we've created a world in which I think mean, it's over 90% of people don't think most people are trustworthy. Now they're probably right right? If 90% of people are telling you something about the society they live in, they're probably a pretty good sense of it. They're probably not coming from nowhere. And so we have to ask, you know, why have we created a world in which we can't trust other people, in which it's not smart to trust other people?
0: Hmm. Yeah. And related to, obviously, there's the mental health, um, excuse me, the mental health consequences and the uh topic of medication that goes on. But I think you know part of their behavioral differences that um is really something that is probably among the most discussed is the, the 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 big role of of social media and technology and the internet and so on in the in the lives of millennials. But what I think is really enlightening about this chapter is how there's a real caution to to not see social media use as as a cause of millennials issues, but more to see it as a symptom uh, of some yeah. sort of larger problem that uh, afflicts this generation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I differ with, uh, I think Jean Twenge is probably the, I and mean, and I use her research in that chapter about mental health, comparative mental health for generational cohorts, but she's come out really, really strongly. And I read her book, IGen or advertisement, whatever it is, um, about what's supposed to be the next generation after millennials, and I figured it would be more nuanced than the Atlantic article about. There was an excerpt about how, you know, it's it's these iPhones, but no, that's really what she thinks. She thinks there's there's the i the introduction of the iPhone is a major social turning point, and the research that I've done doesn't back that up. Um, there are long macroeconomic changes. Friends that are producing these shifts uh, in the responses that she's seeing, and she's not she has in her research not taken economic causes seriously at all, really uh, not even a little bit, just straight up looks at the unemployment rate, the official unemployment rate, and says therefore, people can't be depressed because the unemployment rate is under five. Which I think is poor thought
0: to move on then to the to the conclusion um I like the the title who you have here, so the idea of you know seven signs of the of the bad future uh <laughs> what 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 are some of these uh long term trends that you see uh continuing uh based on what's going on with the millennial generation now as they start to enter into I guess I guess now it's going to be in their their mid to late thirties they're starting to enter into prime adulthood.
1: Yeah, and so these were all things that I think are already happening in some way or another, but these are things like specific things where I think we're going to see qualitative jumps in the next decade or so. Um things like climate, which since I've since I've written this has basically come true, um which is that it will be a central focus of our social organization will be zones of climate intensity, for example, and we're going to have to, like, live around that. That's going to determine the domestic movement of populations, probably the international movement of populations as well, more than anything else, and that's new. Um, Discrimination by algorithm, I think, is a huge one. We've given a lot of power over to uh, black box algorithms, and we don't know how... Those are um, relating to our anti-discrimination laws, which was a historically important part of American liberalism. Uh, and we don't know if they're just being completely obviated by Facebook. Well, I mean, we know that they are in some way, in some cases, where you've got housing ads that are being targeted by racial demographics. Um, that's a big shift. That's a shift in the kind of society we're headed towards. And I think that's going to happen more and more. I'm trying to think what else I I have gotten my list. Uh, I think as we have more more folks suffer with mental health issues, we're going to have to find some other solution than prisons for holding everyone. And I don't know if that's going to be a return to asylums or uh, what exactly that's going to be, but I don't think it's going to be a good thing. So. Basic uh, worker protections, I think, will be eroded along with that. It's going to get really ugly really fast is, uh, <laughs> is basically what that section says. And since I wrote it, I've been surprised at how fast all that's happening.
0: And it also, to me, the, the book overall, to me, the book really begs the question of what of Generation Z which I don't think has a name yet, but millennials were at one point called Generation Y and then someone came up with a millennial and the marketing stuck. Um, what what of the generation that's going to inherit um, a lot of the ongoing conditions that you've seen even since your book's publication, some of these forecasts start to come true that are going to really inherit these uh, this situation that millennials have been Dealing with for their entire lives. I don't know. Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I I think it's really, it's too soon to tell. And I think when people are projecting now what they think the changes are, they're still talking about the same shift that I'm talking about. And they're not talking about the next one. I don't think, because I think the, the conflicts that are going to end up characterizing millennials have not fleshed out yet. I think, Liberal capitalist democracy is headed for a real series of trials and that that's what's going to define our cohort. So Generation Z or whatever iGen, no one should use iGen. I hate that I have to say that every time I want to talk about Jean Twenge's work is I've got to use this brand name that she came up with. <laughs> um, but whatever that cohort is going to be, is going to be in relation to events that have not occurred yet. Uh, at least that's my understanding of the historical moment. So uh, I think we still got our hands full. People are, marketers especially, are eager to move on whenever they see a new consumer demographic. So that's what matters to them in terms of marketing a new demographic or a new generation is now they can say, okay, now a new generation can buy stuff. So we need to understand that because we want to sell them stuff. That's not as interesting to me as the like, broader historical turning
0: right right i mean just like yeah there'll always be another generation down the line i guess for folks to sell them their things to their <laughs> s- their stuff their services in, and their ideas
1: in, until there's a last one and but when that one when that generation is coming up people are still gonna name it and try and sell it stuff so
0: you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. i'm curious to hear what the reaction to your book has been in terms of generation. Have you noticed any kind of differences in terms of how millennials versus Gen X versus baby boomers have received your book and some of its arguments?
1: Yeah, there, uh, there have been some distinctions. Millennials uh, you know, tend to get it and, and, and how it applies to them, which is unsurprising because it is focused on their cohort experience. Um, A lot of baby boomers also see their experience and their experience with children. There's a little bit of a hole I've found with Generation X uh, readers where that's where my biggest complaints have, I think, gotten out. I've been uh, from Generation X folks, and I sort of want to tell them that not every generation confronts history in the same way. And like, not every generation matters the same amount. And like, I'm sorry that (laughs) generation X is like not super historically important in my reading. Um, but I think they may have realized that from the writing itself and, uh, are not
0: particularly enthused. Yeah. It's interesting to see some arguments play out, uh, arguments in the book play out in real life when it comes to different, uh, generational oh, yeah. differences and, uh, generational conflicts. I, I feel bad for the gen Xers. I'm a cusp person myself. So, uh, uh-huh. I, I saw, I see both sides of it quite, quite interestingly mapped onto my, my life. So anyway, um, well, yeah. And
1: but. like, like I said, it's not like anyone's to any generation generations are not metaphors for classes in conflict. Um, so it's not, people should take heart. It's not like if you're in the wrong generation, you're on the wrong side or whatever. Uh, it's about how you relate to these changes that have happened in society. Um, yeah, so nothing personal, Gen X So
0: <laughs> Cool, man, cool. So we've taken up a lot of time already, so um, I'll ask uh, one last question. So what, what have you been working on now? Is it any kind of uh, follow-up to to this book or is it something besides a book tell us what you're working on
1: it's hard because when you do work on generations in particular there's a big market for that um and so there's a whole a lot of people get stuck once you've once you've entered the world of uh generational analysis it's easy to never leave because There are people who want you to consult. There are lots of you know, college, whatever. You can always write more books about the same stuff, and people will still buy them. Uh, And so that's what happens basically to anyone who takes up this work. So I'm trying not to do that. Um, So, no, I will be moving on to different topics in the near future, I hope, although hopefully still talking about this with people uh, as it interests them. I've done a lot of work and thought about it a lot and don't want to Throw it away, but you could really the descent into hackery with generational analysis can come really fast, and so I try to be aware and cautious about that.
0: Well, Malcolm, thank you so much. It's a it's a great book. I think it's an, an important book. A really a really keen uh, synthesis, and also just a, a very deep reflection of a lot of uh, stereotypes and misconceptions that we have of of millennials, while forwarding a uh, a really insightful argument. So, thank you for talking about the book a little bit on, on the show.
1: Thank you so much. And I, I love the podcast. It's been an honor to be on it.
0: All right. Take care. Bye.